0: Hey friends, before we dive into the episode, I've got something for healthcare professionals. Healthcare professionals, if you're locuming or going to locum, navigating it through multiple agents and agencies can be stressful. Back and forth emails and timesheets aren't needed in this era. What if there was an app where you could see the shift, the total pay, the hours and request to book it there and then? Well, there is. Locum's Nest connects healthcare professionals digitally to the NHS staff bank. The app connects already over 50,000 healthcare professionals to vacant work in over 50 NHS trusts and growing. Check it out yourself. That's Locum Nest. Let's get back to the show. Hey everyone, welcome back
1: to another episode of Described In Show. I hope you've all been keeping well. This week we have with us another impressive guest. We have with us Jessica Smith, who is the co-founder and the CXO at Somex, which I'm sure you all know about. Um, it's a massive pleasure having you on the show. We know you've had a stint in PR, marketing agencies, all those weird and wonderful things, which I'm sure the vast majority of listeners will be clueless about. So, we're here to shed a bit of light. But an absolute pleasure having you on the show, Jess. How are you?
2: I'm very well, thank you. And I have to say, it is a different kind of imposter syndrome being interviewed on a podcast for clinicians, by clinicians, generally interviewing clinicians. So, um, I will do my very best to uh, live up to those lofty expectations without um, pretending that I'm a clinician of any variety. Although, there was a time once in my life where I thought that. Maybe that was where it wanted to go down until I realised I was scared of blood. So probably not the right career path for me, thankfully. Um, But yes, thank you for having me. Very (laughs) pleased to be here.
1: No, definitely. And I think um, the world of healthcare is emerging, health tech, med tech, and it's just not just clinicians. It's everyone with different skill sets. And I think you'd be a wonderful guest. So present time, you're running the shop floor with James Somex, working with a variety of companies, pharma, medtech, devices, helping the communication strategy, branding, content. We know it didn't happen overnight. We know it's been a long graph and I'm going to touch on that because I saw something I want to touch on. But take us to the very beginning of, of this journey. I know you mentioned maybe you once to go this pinnacle route and then you realized you wasn't <laughs> like, Tell us a bit about the journey that brought you to kind of founding Somex. Cool.
2: So I guess I have always been interested in healthcare in science. I don't think I truly realized I was particularly creative um, until much later. And in on reflection, you know, I I think, oh, maybe I should have done some different A levels. But I'd always gone down the science route, um, been really active, loved sport, thought I know what I want to do, I want to be a sports medicine doctor. Um, and then I think probably coupled with realising I wasn't a fan of blood, and it was a very long route to get there, decided that wasn't quite going to be the, the journey that I wanted to go on. And I'm a really impatient person, so tell me that's going to take me 10 years to get somewhere, and that's definitely off the table for me. Um, so I actually went to university to study something called sports therapy, which um, is not registered by the healthcare, blah, 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 is not registered by the HCPC. Um and at the time I was assured it was imminent. Um and through the duration of the four years that I studied, I was still assured it was was imminent and it never it never came to fruition. It's still not registered now, and it's it basically has to go through government and it's clearly not a priority. I and mean, can you blame them? Um and in order to be able to do the job I wanted to do, work with sports teams and have that, I guess, like healthcare element. That just wasn't going to work for me. However, as well as realising earlier I didn't like blood, I started my course and then realised I didn't like touching people, which was also a big barrier to um, <laughs> my professional development as a sports therapist. And various reasons I – no, I tried to change course, various reasons I couldn't, um, and just thought, you know what, I will get a degree. A degree's as good as, you know, anything. At least I've got one. Um, I'm vaguely interested in it. It will be fine. And through that process, realised I enjoyed writing. Though I I loved the writing assignments. I loved my dissertation. I really loved it. Um and so basically just decided let's yeah. double down on what I do enjoy. Um so got experience person, pretty much.
1: She loves her dissertation.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean that was pretty much the only thing I did enjoy. But um that's not true. I loved uni it's great. Um, although I'm not sure I would pay nine grand for it now. I was lucky enough not to be in that before that cohort of people were the price rocketed. But anyway, um yeah, I just got experience from anywhere that would really have me. Um, so that was charities, um mainly charities to be honest. Uh, and then got my first job working in a trust of uh, an NHS trust um in Worcester. Um and that was kind of my very first communications role. And so landed kind of by accident, I think, in a healthcare comms role, largely because I had a background in science and I liked writing and being creative. Um, I then moved on from there and worked for various public sector organisations, including Borough Police Force. So that was um, an interesting experience, um, but a good one nonetheless. Uh, some more charities, uh, the kind of consumer public sector not public sales, consumer and um, retail. And then I I was living in Devon at the time, um, which is a great place to grow up. If you, if you want a career that is exciting, fast moving, you know, the sky's the limit kind of thing, Devon is not the right place for that. Um, beautiful beaches, beautiful countryside. As I say, I did it growing up, but I reached um, a ceiling pretty quickly and decided that actually London was the city of opportunity so let's go there um and so much so that in one of my interviews I was just I was applying anyway, and one of my in one of my interviews I was asked why I wanted I think it was asked why I wanted the job and I said that basically to progress in Devon I had to wait for someone to retire or die and whilst that was the truth um it probably wasn't the interview answered, I should have given it, needless to say I didn't get the job. Um, So I I basically just kept applying, and I'd ended up applying to a role at the Royal College of Physicians, uh, one of many that I had applied for, and not because I had a particular interest in health necessarily, but just I wanted a job in London, so I'll just apply. Um, Anyway, I got the job, and um, that was my ticket to London, Uh, and then when I got there, a whole world opened up to me, I think, um, and it was there that I got to work on a lot of quality improvement programs. Uh, I got stuck into the comms and the public affairs around the junior doctor strikes. So it was a really cool time to be there. It was really interesting. Probably not cool if you were a junior doctor at the time, but um, it was it was cool to be a part of that movement and kind of be in the weeds of everything that's go everything that was going on at the time that. Uh, The then president, Jane Dacre, was having weekly, if not daily meetings with Jeremy Hunt, who was the health secretary at the time, um, being involved in drafting her statements, um, her public statements on the topic. Um, And a lot of those conversations about how the role of, I suppose, the Royal Colleges and the Royal College of Physicians in particular in uh, protecting the profession and and doctors at large and and healthcare professionals and i learned a lot there i learned a lot about communications in healthcare i learned a lot about the political landscape in healthcare and and how politics influences healthcare so heavily um and just a lot about clinical life i think um but it was also the first time i really got my first taste of health tech and they were running a program called uh, the health informatics unit and that was kind of like the first time anyone had really given that much thought to how does technology affect delivery of patient care how clinicians do their job and how patients access information um, and it was incredibly interesting it was very very grassroots um, It was kind of the first time anyone had really given it any thought I think and it was ultimately what seeded what is now the faculty of clinical informatics which is a collaboration between several of the rural colleges but it's really cool and interesting to be a part of those conversations and hear from different stakeholders different sides of the table about the role that technology could and should play for better or worse and the reservations that people had and you know how much trust should we be putting into technology and um It was great. I I really enjoyed that. Um, But again, being the precocious person that I was, um, after a period of time, realised that, you know, as you do, there are are other areas I wanted to explore. And I think, ironically, actually, for a period of time, because of a TV programme I watched, I was dead set on being the head of comms for Met Police looking back, I am so glad that that is not the route that I went down. Um, (laughs) I would not want to be there right now. And it sounds like an absolute minefield. Um, Although an exciting challenge, I'm sure. Um, Kudos to whoever's doing that. Um, But I realised that the role I was doing at the Royal College of Physicians was what you'd call in-house. So that means that you are a communications professional that works within an organisation and you're doing the communications. The other way of utilising communications capability, I suppose, is by using an agency. So that is uh, an agency, a, a organisation that provides a service with, um, well, it can be anything, but in this instance, communications. Um, and, you know, there are lots of benefits to that. There is also um, a cost to that, uh, for better or worse. Um, and I was very aware that agencies worked in a different way. And in order to be able to be the best communications professional that I could be, I needed to be able to see both sides of the table, know how to run and not run an agency because I had no aspirations to actually have my own at that point, um, but know how to manage an agency as an in-house person, but also how to how to operate within an agency and, and how that differed. What I didn't realise is that most healthcare agencies predominantly focus on pharma, um, and as with many interviews, I think often that experience is a a joint interview almost between both you and the organization you're interviewing with. And um, they for sure oversell you on who their clients are. And it sounded like they had some great um, public sector clients and uh, NGOs and that kind of thing. the reality is it's it's mainly pharma. And the reason for that is because pharma have the big budgets. Um, And so that's why they are able to utilize external expertise in a way that most other healthcare organizations can't. that was a baptism of fire, for sure. Um, it was very, very different, despite the fact I had a really solid ground in communications and in healthcare. Um, but what I realised very quickly was that I had a really unique vantage point where I understood what I consider to be the whole healthcare ecosystem. So it's not just pharma, it's not just the NHS, it's both of those as part of one world and, and everything in between that, all the other players too. And, and no one else really got that. and I never really understood why, because we're talking about healthcare, and how can you just be talking to one person or one particular type of person to achieve something? Because it takes many. Um, but I learned and I learned why they do things the way they do in agencies. And I learned all about pharma and I learned all about the ABPI and regulation of medicines and what it takes to bring a medicine to market um, and how pharma companies operate commercially and, and how they decide where to focus their attentions and energies and how they collaborate with patient groups for example um and so again learn a great deal um and while i was at the royal college of physicians that was where i met james he was on the um fmlm fellowship and at health education england um he later moved on to the digital London accelerator um and so we had kind of the shared interest of health tech um and he had identified that a lot of the companies he was working with had this communication need where they knew they needed to communicate their value, but didn't know how to do that in a coherent and consistent way that really, I guess, aligned with the pain points of various stakeholders or customers. But equally understanding, by contrast to pharma, for example, uh, in health tech, you need to be able to communicate with everyone along that ecosystem, because in within the same day, you're going to be having an investor conversation, you're going to be having a team meeting, you're going to be selling to um maybe it's a practice manager in a primary care organization in a a gp practice you could also be speaking to um someone who is in a pcn or an ics as well as then speaking to a, a uh someone at nhs england about a strategy that's coming out or um a piece of procurement policy or something like that and so you have to be able to communicate your value to each of them um, and understand where you fit um, and we understood that between James and I from his clinical perspective having been um, an anaesthetist and um, worked obviously on the shop floor of uh, hospitals so we, we identified this need I loved it because for me I was working with pharma which was cool because there's big budgets you can do sexy things um, in the same way that you can't when there are less budgets but what I really loved was that I was really close to the impact. Um, and I I learned that that's what I needed from a career being, I wanted to be purpose driven, everyone says this, right, but genuinely, maybe it's my ego, but I needed to feel that I was making a difference. And what I soon realized was that I wasn't just making a difference to the outcome of those companies, I was actually making a commercial impact internally because i was helping set their business strategy and and more recently i've come to realize the way i think of it is that there are four cornerstones to a business there's the finance you have to be funded there has to be a way whether it's revenue whether it's investment you have to have talent you have to have people um i'm going to forget what they all are now (laughs) oh product okay so you have to have product. your technology you have, to, you have to have something to sell, to give to people, to solve their problem. But you also have to be able to communicate. And if you don't have one of those cornerstones, your business doesn't stand up. And the reason communication is so important is because you're doing it all day, every day. And so if no one understands your value, you can have the best product in the world made by the most intelligent people and the best people to create it. If no one understands that, then it's kind of irrelevant because it's not going to get where it needs to go and make the impact where it should. Um and so I saw very viscerally how actually just by doing some very what seemed to me to be very simple and obvious things with these companies, um, I saw what impact that had in terms of building their brand and, and giving them that kind of commercial cohesion. So anyway, fast forward, I worked at another agency, um and James and I this this niggling thing just it was it didn't go away and we just saw this need increasing um and more people were coming and asking for help and there came a point where we were like actually it, there's a jumping off point here and that coincided with covid mm-hmm. um which funny enough you know was kind of the uh, probably not renaissance but it was a catalyst for health tech definitely people started showing interest. Uh, We had no other options. People were using it. And, you know, yes, that we've seen kind of that rescind a little bit, but there was a huge need. And I think from there, we we basically decided to just run with it um, and take the chance because James had run businesses before. I had felt I wanted to perhaps do some freelance at some point in my life. Never... Well, in fact, I always said two things to myself. I would never have my own company and work with my partner. And I've somehow wound up doing both of those things. Um, but actually, it's worked out very well because we are—we both have very different backgrounds and, and are quite different people, but also really complement each other, I think. Um, and that, that makes us, I think, incredibly dynamic and compelling. And um, I mean, I guess it also helps when you you know, in lockdown for two years (laughs) and you're the only two people uh, around to speak to. So I suppose uh, it's a bit of an incubator for innovation ideas and and perhaps doing things differently. So anyway, we kind of kicked off at the beginning of the pandemic. I handed in my notice at my job um, and we'd been in, we were in stealth mode for quite some time. Um, And initially we just worked with a handful of health tech companies, really shaping our offer. It's very much kind of, I suppose, a beta launch, figuring out exactly what the need is and really refining our product, the quality of our product. And, you know, you get things wrong along the way, um, but you also learn a great deal. Um, And, you know, don't get me wrong, it's probably the hardest thing I've ever done, but also the absolute best thing that I've ever done. Um, And I... Would not say i'm a natural entrepreneur at all i know it's out to be someone who owned a business quite the opposite um and so i i always say that i'm a, an entrepreneur by accident um it doesn't come yeah it just doesn't come naturally to me and but that's been a real journey and i've enjoyed learning through that experience and gaining those skills and and more than anything actually the confidence um the confidence has been really interesting for me because i it's something that's always been a challenge and it's required me to just own it own myself own our business what we're doing the way we're doing it and i've had like it's i've had no other option i've had to do that and that has been a real gift i think um and i guess fake it till you make it but ultimately you're never really faking it if you are genuinely good at what you're doing and you enjoy it you, like, you'll figure it out one way and it'll be fine
0: <laughs> i've got a question for you so Clearly along this journey, you're a master at communication and I can definitely say that because I'm a fan of the health tech pigeon and I just love the way you communicate through that. Um, so I want to ask when diving into sort of the communication, a lot of our listeners are going to be entrepreneurs thinking about founding a company Mm. and they're now going to be starting thinking, how do I communicate with the world? Can you break us down, break communication down into some of the factors we should be thinking about? So, for example. I've noticed very clearly that the tone of communication varies depending on who you're talking to, and it's very clear with how Somex does it. And I just love that. Uh, But yeah, give us a few tips and tricks um, on communication, on the factors we should be thinking about, be it internally communicating or externally communicating, and through whatever medium we choose. Um, I'd love, I'd love some tips for ourselves, to be honest.
2: Yeah, communication is super important. I'm clearly biased in that view, but you're right in that. So when people think of a brand, often they're like, I've got my logo sorted. I've got my brand. But the thing is, your your brand is so much more than that. Your brand is everything that someone can see and hear and perceive of your company. And so your brand is therefore a lot more than the png that you stick on your home page um or perhaps get printed on a t-shirt um and so i think what that requires is some real dedicated thought around it's probably sound a bit corny but the personality of your organization so you've probably already done thinking about what's your mission what is it you're aiming to achieve where are you headed what's that big picture and that's really important to you and we'll come back to that but as an organization i suppose it's impart your values so and your values are kind of your how you get there. Um, but your your personality is how you're going to interact with other people. And for some people, it you could be you could have a really nurturing tone of voice and and that could be particularly important speaking to certain groups. for example, if you are a consumer brand that is, or, you know, a patient group that are predominantly working with people who are accessing healthcare, um, you don't want to preach to them, you don't want to patronise them. Um, But you also recognise that, particularly if it's a patient group, they're likely to be going through challenges, and therefore you want to come across as being understanding and supportive of that. Equally, you're not going to want to be patronising to clinicians, but clinicians are not going to probably respond to a tone that is so nurturing because they are more academic, they're more science, data driven, um, they need evidence, but they also do need, they need reassurance too. Um, and so the, the tone and the nuance is very different. So I think often just throwing words down onto a page about how you would describe your company or how you want people to describe your company is a really good place to start in that. Um, and, and often you end up with a, a, a spectrum and so and then you have to decide where on that spectrum you want to sit. So if you want to be nurturing the other end of that is being direct, or well, you may choose another word, I'll choose direct for now. And so actually you may you may end up smack bang in the middle or you may end up on the you know more towards the middle where actually you have the capability to perhaps be more direct and authoritative um, but ultimately, fundamentally you're still you have that nurturing tone of voice. So I think it's that. And I think the important thing to remember here is that this, that tone of voice and that brand is not your founders. That is not the people in your organization. It's a sum of all of those things. But I I see a lot that often the company brand could be an extension of your founders and your founders brand. And particularly if you have the kind of company where you're looking to eventually get acquired or go for an exit. The two have to be very distinct because at the end of the day, that founder may not always be there. that CEO may not always be there. And it's fantastic when you have big personalities and you can you can leverage that. But you have to be able to identify a separate brand and a separate personality away from the individuals. Um, And that can be really difficult to do, um, especially as the founder, because it is your baby. It is your thing that you have lived and breathed and brought into the world. And you're having all of those conversations. And I think that's one of the benefits of working with someone from outside is that you're you're bursting your echo chamber. It's easy as a founder and as a CEO and 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 a, a senior leader in an organization to sit in in that bubble in that echo chamber. Because of course you believe what you're doing is the best thing that has ever existed and it's going to solve all of these problems. And but you get blind spots from that and you have to be challenged on it. And I think You know, so whether or not you work with an agency or actually you have some mentors or trusted advisors or even just friends and family who, by the way, everyone has their own bias anyway. Um, But getting that outside opinion to kind of challenge you and say, is that the right tone of voice? Or actually, I don't think that like that doesn't resonate with me if I'm a patient. That's not how I want to be spoken to or I would want to be spoken to if I was in a situation where perhaps I've just received a I don't know, a diagnosis for cancer. Um, I I might want this instead. So I think looking outside to get, you know, I suppose a second opinion will really help you with that process. Um, and what I often say is it's good to be aware of how other competitors are doing it, but don't stay in your lane and don't be too led by that because ultimately they aren't you. And if you are trying to just do what is different to them that isn't the essence and truth of who your company is what your company is and what it stands for and so i think yes take note be aware but don't build your entire brand on trying to be different or trying to set yourself apart um so there's that and i think the other part of that is having we call them key messages but ultimately um i guess some key statements that you stand your company up on so who you are what you stand for what you're doing how you're doing it why you're the best people to do it um and that will take a bit of that's an exercise to do as a group definitely it's very very difficult to do that on your own um and i've done a lot of these and i struggle to do that independently um it will take a lot of wordsmithing. People will quibble over, over certain words, but those are good discussions to have because ultimately where you end up is somewhere where the, everyone is comfortable and that reflects the conversations that people are already having. But it gives you consistency and that consistency of language builds your brand. So your, your brand is as much the words that you use, the way that you use them, as it is your logo and your color palette and, you know, Your website. Um, So, all of those things add up, but I think don't underestimate the importance of consistency of language, but also defining your company's personality and being really clear how that is different from the individuals in your
0: organization. I love how um, you mentioned about having mentors, coaching, and external people sort of uncover blind spots. Um, On that point, have you ever come across a, a company, a founder, where They've come, across, they've come with a product and the product and how they're communicating is clashing. And you've had to sort of say, no, you need to start doing it more like this. Otherwise, your consumers, your target audience will probably be alienated. Have you ever come across that? And what was sort of how was the how was the founder sort of um, receptive to that sort of advice?
2: So pretty much every client I've ever worked with to a greater or lesser extent. Um, and not that actually, you know, what they were already doing, uh, there was necessarily something really deeply wrong with that. But I think it's it's a confronting exercise for those kinds of people, I think. And and you, uh, they have to be in a place where they're willing to be challenged, otherwise you would you know, you're never gonna get anywhere, ultimately. Yeah. Um But I think in terms of getting them comfortable with it, I think is by sharing, so we always try and evidence where we're coming from, why we are recommending something. And also, I think one of the big things is that every company has to be able to do that, too. So you can have these four statements, but ultimately you have to be able to evidence that you are who you say you are and you can do what you say you're going to do. We call those proof points. And that can be anything from your health economics data to the CV of your founders or people on your team to um, perhaps your revenue and growth. Over time, it's, it's the data points that back up all of those things, um, and so it's that I think, and and kind of holding the mirror up, I suppose, um, and really getting down into the detail of okay, so who are you talking to? Who are you talking to? Who do you who do you want to influence? And what is it that they feel? What are their pain points? what are the challenges that they face? And all of the challenges, not necessarily the challenges specific to the solution that you have. um, But, you know, what frustrates them in a day, in a day of work, in a a day of life? Um, And how might they be feeling? Um, And so I have to say, I don't think that I always really enjoy that part of working with clients. It's one of my very favorite parts, not least because it's, it is, it is a challenge. It really is. Um, but you can see yeah. people's brains starting to tick. Um, and and by the way, it's not to disregard what they've done already. It's to filter what they've done already, figure out what's working and provide them with a new point of view or an updated point of view, should I say? Absolutely. And I think often they've come out the other side of that actually having found that a really useful exercise because it's given them an opportunity to reflect on how they communicate with their team and the way that perhaps their sales team are communicating yeah. versus how their product team are communicating and realizing that actually there's a disconnect there. And whilst obviously both those teams need to, there's nuance in the way that they'll communicate and the things that they're communicating, but you have to have that consistency. And so when you, when they yeah. can start to see how that all comes together, they they get on board pretty quickly, I would say. But equally, you do have founders, as I said, who are there are particular words that they are obsessed with and they love, and there will be reasons for that. And so sometimes it is about finding balance to to incorporate that um, yeah. with our perspective too, rather than just saying let's just throw everything you've done in the bin and start from a, a blank sheet of paper. It's not doing that at all. Um, and yeah. I think there are times where that is appropriate. There are times where that's not appropriate and that might be because what they have is actually pretty good already. It just needs refining or that you can see in doing that you're going to insult someone um, and that might not be the best place to start a relationship. So it's yeah, I guess it's um, you have to be able to read the context and read the person and understand what although they're a client and they've asked you to do this particular piece of work reading between the lines to understand what it is they're really asking and expecting of you um, and figuring out how they communicate and um, I guess mirroring that to an extent.
0: Absolutely Um, I can tell you're definitely now a master at communication because that is amongst the most difficult thing to do for founders so as, as, as a founder I can say when you when you get harsh feedback the natural thing is damn that's my baby that they've just sort of Uh, said it's not right Um, and then and then you become with the communication of that person you become receptive and you go hold on a minute they're completely right Um, so yeah you're right that is amazing I want to ask one more key question that I'm really personally interested in learning from you and that's about community building so we're told that communication is vital to building communities and that's a community within a company and a community amongst your users and the people who are coming to sort of use your product or whatever it is, Um, be it clinicians, be it the direct consumers themselves. Um, I'd love to know a a few tips on communication and looking to foster a healthy community.
2: I and we are of the belief that it comes down to one core thing, which is value. So you have a product, you have a solution. And that's great. That delivers inherent value. However, as a provider and someone, you're building relationships. And therefore, what people remember is how you made them feel. And so, and what they got over and above what they were expecting to get. And that's not to say that you need to have no boundaries and go wild and just do everything for everyone. That's, I'm not saying that. But in terms of building community, I think where we start with content is you have a product that's providing value through your content. You should talk about your product maybe 30 percent of the time, max. We would aim for 10 to 20 percent of the time. The rest of the time, how are you adding value to the people that you want to connect with? Because that's how you build trust and you build relationships. And so often the way that you do that is through inspiring people. Through educating people or entertaining people. And that's quite a good framework, I would say, to operate through, whether you're creating content or you're building a community or running an event, is what value am I giving here? And so it it kind of requires you to take away the ego a little bit. Um, And something, particularly around events and I guess community in that way, I've been reflecting on a lot recently about events that I've been to and communities that I've been a part of and their purpose and their role. And what I've seen is that often in those situations or some of those events I've been to that have wanted to build community, the event really has been an opportunity for that company to showboat themselves, which, okay, cool, you're doing a really great thing. And sometimes that's really overt. Sometimes it's thinly veiled. But ultimately, i then come away thinking, well, what was the value to me of that? I understand what you're doing as a company. And that's great. Cool. But what have I learned from that? And what did I what was I expecting to learn? And I think that's something that we've always stuck to quite closely is if we're going to create a piece of content or we're going to do an interview with a publication or run an event, who is it for? And what value do we want to give them? And then work backwards from there. And that then gives you your plan because you can figure out what it is that you want to say to give that value. You can figure out. Also, who the people in the room or on the receiving end of that content should be. Um and who the people are that it should be coming from, whether that's directly or indirectly. So that could be your speakers on stage. That could be the person that gets interviewed for a blog article or for uh, an interview with an outlet or even, um, you know, potentially a piece of content on your socials. Um, and so if you always start from a point of I'm here to add value. And then identify what that value is. I think the community will build naturally around it because they will be so grateful for that. And and it then becomes a a, a, a two way relationship because you can ask them what they want too, and then you can you can address that. You can serve that. Um, so rather than just guessing, you're actually crowdsourcing what that value could and should be and and yes of course there there can be inherent value to you in in doing so there's nothing wrong with that but i think by by kind of putting yourself or your company or your product front and center it detracts from the potential value that you can give and it might be a bit airy fairy but i am personally of a strong belief and i know james shares this with me that if you put value out there and you put good out there ultimately it comes back to you and I don't think that should ever be your, your main driver. Don't do something just to receive something. It goes back to like being a kid and and, and presence, right? Um, and your parents have always said, don't give to receive. You give for the pleasure of giving. Um, and if someone gives something back to you, that's lovely, but you haven't given someone a gift so that you get one back. Um, and that's kind of a principle by, that I w- live by, work by. And, and I think that, you know, we embody at Somex is that, actually we really care about the community in which we exist so how can we give back to that um and if we benefit from that great but ultimately we already benefit because it feels great it's enjoyable we enjoy doing that um and that's enough so yes of course you know as organizations there there has to be a commercial element um in in most cases there has to be some roi but i think it you know consider how you look at that roi or what you consider roi to be um But yeah, value first and foremost, put value at the heart of what you do and community will form around.
1: Definitely. I think the value-led approach always comes out on top. And obviously, I never knew you before Somex, but James has always, before Somex started. he was always out there giving value. You know, when we were kind of building the brand, you know, the brand hierarchy and all of these little things, you know, he was helping us out with it, asking for nothing in return. I want to take a step back and... If people were to see what you, James, the Somex team are doing, it's incredible. You're working with so many big, big brands putting out content. But I saw something on LinkedIn recently and it caught me off guard. And the reason it caught me off guard was when I see you, I see you as someone confident. When you're hosting the health tech events, you're on stage, you're very good at public speaking. But a few days ago, I read that when you were starting the agency, you were overwhelmed. You were crying for a few months. Tell us a bit more about that, because when people see you, I, I would have never thought, I would have thought, you know, you only say you're super confident, you know, is the last thing I wanted to see. So I think it would be quite to touch on that.
2: It's a funny one. Um, I guess it comes back to fake it till you make it. And um, I think we all struggle with imposter syndrome, although what I will say is a very good friend of mine who works in um, positive psychology said that actually, uh, Imposter syndrome is a faux pas. It's actually known as the imposter phenomenon because if you call it a syndrome, people think that there's something wrong with them, but that's not the case. It's a very natural feeling to have. Um, Anyway, that's a side note. Um, But yeah, I think I I I said before. I I guess I always have struggled with confidence. However, I guess strangely by something of an oxymoron, I've always. Um been able to perform I suppose so I can turn it on and whilst I I did say earlier I wasn't necessarily creative I've always danced and performed earlier in my life and that's interesting because I'm naturally relatively introverted I can be introverted I can have extroverted and have my moments there but um I guess you know I I kind of just feel like the there's been no other option than to at least pretend to be confident, even if I'm not, because if I get up on stage in front of 250 people, and I let my nerves get the better of me, and I show that I'm not confident, I am gonna feel horrible afterwards. I'm gonna feel embarrassed. And I'm gonna also feel like I've let everyone else down and I'm representing my company. That I'm incredibly proud of and I think so probably there's something about the fear of not letting people down um but so and um, yeah I think no the honest truth is everyone's faking it until they make it no one's as confident as they ever seem to be um if they are there's probably something wrong no I'm joking um but um and I think also I am no stranger to hard work Um, it's always just been very innate in me to be a hard worker from school and and through all, all the work that I've done, all the jobs that I've had. And I knew that I was good at what I did and I knew that I loved it. And I, as I said, I thought I knew what hard work was, but there is nothing that can prepare you for taking that leap from a very safe, secure role, as much as that, that in itself was stressful and hard work there's nothing that can prepare you for taking that leap um and it, in all honesty it was a shock to the system I wasn't I wasn't prepared for it and I I overestimated how well I'd be able to handle it I think I, to be honest I handled it fine but I'm also a crier naturally, I'll cry for any reason. And not because I'm sad, necessarily. A lot that a lot of the time, yes, maybe I will be sad, but it's, I'll be frustrated, I'll be angry, I'll be overwhelmed, whatever it is, like, that's my natural instinct. Um, so, you know, I'm not ashamed to say that. Uh, and I think that's okay, that ultimately, it's a, you know, release of how you're feeling. And that's healthy. And I think, you know, if you let that bottle up, that's also never going to be a useful thing to you. Um, but I think it's really important to be really honest about your experiences and how challenging you find things. And as I said, I I wasn't ever naturally someone that had an affinity for wanting to run their own business and going from being in a secure salary, a secure role to being responsible for paying other people's mortgages and putting food on the table is really tough, but also you know building my reputation and the reputation of my company that's a huge responsibility um and something I really wanted to do justice and i I didn't take that lightly i think and it in all honesty, I probably not took it too seriously, but it was heavier on me than it than it needed to be um and so I think. I think you know there, there's sometimes a perception that everyone should run their own business, and you know it's like the pinnacle of all things, <laughs> and it's not for everyone. And I think we should be on. Yeah, we should be honest about that. I think there's nothing wrong with staying in a salaried role. And there are days where I sometimes think oh, I wish, and then but most of the time, ninety nine percent of the time, I'm so grateful that that's not the position I'm in. Um, but everyone's different and everyone needs something different. And I don't think it should be the thing that everyone needs to yearn for because it's not always all it's cracked up to be. Um, and yeah, I think you, you need a perfect storm for it to really work. And yeah, yeah. And I, I've been really lucky to go through that experience with James as well. Um, I, I, I'm i confident I would not have been able to do that on my own. Um and yeah you have to have the right people around you and you have to be able to understand each other and recognize that yeah sometimes are just tough and it's also not easy to stand in front of someone while they're crying um and be like uh yeah. i don't want to keep putting you through this are you sure this is what you want to do and that's that's tough for anyone um as well as being the person who's feeling all of those things and you, i think you know you all know this as co-founders you know, you have to be be able to lean on each other as much as you have to be able to support each other. And I think, um, I suppose, being able to be vulnerable in that way with a co-founder, I think is a really important part of being a successful co-founding team. Um, And that's not to say you need to necessarily bear your soul. I'm in quite a unique position where I live with my co-founder and um, we are in a relationship not everyone is in that situation and that comes with its own trials and tribulations but also comes with its great benefits too and sometimes it makes life way easier, and sometimes it makes it way harder um (laughs) but I think yeah I would just say you know it's important to be honest and also not be ashamed of the times when you found it hard or you've questioned whether you're doing the right thing and when something has shaken you or you don't feel confident and actually something I have been thinking a lot about recently is that a lot of my confidence has actually not come from myself which is a really controversial thing to say because lots of people are of the belief that you know you should you know self-love find your inner confidence be your own cheerleader which by the way I think is important I, I do I do agree with that but sometimes you need someone to believe in you you need that as your proof point to finally believe in yourself and I've been incredibly lucky through my career journey that I've had several people that have have stuck their neck out for me and just gave me a chance where I honestly I don't really know why but they did and that's what brought me to where I am today and in them doing that has enabled me to them putting me even in putting me in uncomfortable positions where I didn't feel ready to do something I that that in itself gave me confidence but also seeing that other people had confidence in me pushed me to then have confidence in myself in part, because i don't want to let them down but in part i was like well if they believe i can do it there has to be some truth there like that these aren't stupid people um they know me very well um for better or worse and so if if they still think i can do it after that there's got to be some truth there so why don't i just give it a go um and for me that those have been the seeds that I've nurtured. It's me that has nurtured that, but they, they have planted those seeds, and I'm incredibly grateful for that because I think ultimately everyone needs someone. Everyone needs someone to say you can do it, and not just not just your friends, not just your family. The people who are going to say it anyway, people that just come out of left field and just champion you for no explicable reason. Um, that I think has untold impact on individuals and and their trajectory in their career and in their life and and where their confidence comes from so i think you can find it in yourself but ultimately it's not a bad thing to find it from other people and that's not to say rely on other people for your happiness your confidence or anything like that but i think when we talk about value you can you can give value to people in that way by pushing them to do something they never thought they could do or just being creating space for them to feel vulnerable um and people have done that for me, and that's where I've had my confidence from. Um, the fact that I've not broken anything yet um, probably <laughs> is a decent proof point, too. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, that's that's incredible. And it feels, just hearing your journey, your story, it feels as if this whole new world opened up as soon as you kind of embarked on this journey with Somex, with James. And like you really come into your element. Um, and. You know, all the little things you enjoyed in all those previous jobs, the creativity, the comms, the writing are all coming together. Now, the the one thing I wanted to ask was, and you've been in a very good position, is there are other people that are not only opening up services, agencies, websites. What, what are the things you guys did to land your first client? Because for many people, that is one of the hardest things to do. Um, what advice would you give to individuals like that?
2: I don't know if I can give any advice because I think we were in quite a unique position where unfortunate position, privileged position, where I I didn't have a profile and I didn't have network. And because in the worlds I existed in, that was just never a thing. Ultimately the the brands that you work for speak for themselves. Um no one um like I has their own brand and no one like does their own content or anything like that. You when you speak, you speak on behalf of the agency you work for or your clients. Um, so you're very much kind of behind the curtain. James's experience is very different to that, where he had to put himself out there um, and built an incredible networking community around him. And, you know, being really honest, that was what landed us our first client because they had trust in him mm. because he had a track record. Now, You know, while we were in stealth, there was time, potentially a time where I speak very quietly, maybe overlap. So I couldn't be really outwardly vocal about what it was that we were doing. Um, And he (laughs) could. And he already he had his podcast. He'd been working across these accelerators. um, He had, you know, great relationships with investors, with, um, you know, the NHS, with innovators, with, you know, different programs, different people. And so I think when he decided to close down the accelerator, I think people were also quite curious, like, what are you doing next? And inherently, kind of, some people wanted to get involved. And so it was that, and I will always be very grateful that, you know, we were able to benefit from all of that in a very overt way. And and I guess his... The legwork he had done previously now the legwork that i'd done previously was very much in the background and it wasn't the same because it was built upon my expertise knowledge and understanding of healthcare communications and i didn't need a personal brand for that whereas james did for what he was doing and so i guess it was the coming together of of both of those things um and yeah people just putting their trust in us um Which, again, I'm incredibly grateful for. And, you know, we still have our very first client. We still work with them. Um, And as I said, we've got things wrong along the way. And but I'm really confident that we've got better and better and better. And that snowballs. Um, And, you know, I am not ashamed to say no one can take that success away from us. And, you know, you go through tough times and i think as you evolve challenges change over time things don't actually get any less hard you just solve some problems and a whole new set of problems comes in um but also i think you learn to deal with them better you become more resilient Mm. but when i look back so this christmas just gone was a really um i guess important moment for us because if i looked back to the christmas the year before it was practically the tale of two cities it could not be more different um there was three of us the christmas of uh 2021 um i was crying a lot Uh, (laughs) and it was really tough um and then fast forward to this last year things difficult in a different way i wasn't crying we have a team of 10 people and it feels like we have an actual business and we and the di- it, the difference wasn't the fact we had an actual business the difference was we believed it mm. we believed that we had a business and you know you you look at your growth through that period of time and like you i think you know we obviously you regularly look at your finances and your growth metrics and all of that kind of thing of course you do you have those regular check-ins but actually when you have those two points that are so far apart and you see the difference and the growth across that time it's huge and that's really confronting. Whereas when you're looking at it more regularly, it's less obvious. It's like if mm. um, I don't know, someone loses weight or gains weight. If you're if it's someone you live with, you might not notice on a week to week basis if you see them all the time. But if it was like an uncle or an aunt that maybe you've not seen for six months and they've gone on like some kind of lifestyle transformation, you're gonna really notice that because of the period of time yeah. where you've not seen them. So I think it's you know, really important to have, I guess, those checkpoints and and have that time to step back but yeah I guess I go back to what I said before that getting your first time is is tough and I I absolutely see that with companies we work with too um I think we were in a unique position where we had, I guess built we had a track record before we started and we had yeah. a community before we started and that gave us um I guess pushed us towards being able to get our our first client and our first couple of clients um more easily than perhaps others would be able to. Um and I don't say that with any arrogance because I think we were in many ways lucky, but I think that's also a culmination mm-hmm. for all the work we'd done previously. Um whereas you know lots of companies are coming from a standing start, especially if you build a product. Um and so convincing people to trust not just in you but in that product is a different ball game to people just trusting in James and I and you know we've got a CV that backs up what we're doing um there's no kind of additional factor where you're going to have to trust in the technology or a platform or
1: service no definitely and I think the one thing you mentioned and it's, it's nice to echo it is you only realize how far you've come when you look back and it's over a period of time mm. and it's always the small wins that lead to the big victories um, and you can clearly tell with, yeah. with Somex. I remember when James was building it in stealth mode and he sent me kind of the PDF of the Somex branding. And he's like, hey, mate, I'm going to be launching this soon. And I was like, mate, this looks bloody sick. Um, and following up, the, the question I had was, so I'm going to put my hands up. I used to think this whole PR, this marketing, this content was a gimmick. I thought it was all fluffy stuff. I never realized it was a real job, right? That's me being a traditional clinician. You're not alone. I don't judge you for that. Do you know what I mean, right? So going into the world of entrepreneurship, startups, content creation, I know how incredibly valuable it is, even more so now. So for any health tech company that, let's say, they don't have the biggest budget in the world, they're probably bootstrapping, what are the first few things they need to get on point from a PR, branding, comms point of view, um, from your experience?
2: Uh, well, first of all, I would say don't put yourself under pressure to get anything on point because when you're that early on, you're not going to get anything on point. It's an iterative process, and be open to that. Um, but I would say that I, I think community is is an interesting thing, and don't get me wrong, building community takes a lot of resource and capacity. But I think even if you're able to just give t- consideration to what your community, so the different people that you want to be engaging with, what they need. Think about that and think about how what is in your wheelhouse in order to help you address those things. Um, and I think also, I know I said earlier about, you know, separating out founders and um individuals in the company versus the company actually sometimes the easiest way to start is for founders to be sharing their journey and talking about the things that they're interested in i think that's a really good place to start because ultimately people connect with people we are humans we are creatures that seek out relationships and uh connect over emotions and i think by i guess being a bit vulnerable but by sharing that experience there'll be other people who will get value from that and will um want to engage with you for a variety of different reasons so I think that's often a good place to start um I guess also caveating that with perhaps don't overshare um maybe don't take a photo of yourself crying just talk about it two years later (laughs) um so I think doing that um and I think also remember that actually connection is really important. So you don't have to be pumping out a load of content all of the time and speaking to the media all of the time. It's the conversations that you're having, you know, perhaps the events and the meetups that you're going to are are valuable too and actually is an opportunity for you to hear from other people going through similar experiences and um, get advice from people that, you know, you wouldn't normally necessarily have access to. Um, so I think I wouldn't put pressure on yourself to kind of go all in right away. Um, and I would also consider kind of the one thing that your company can talk about. And if you that's one post that you put out or one blog that you write every month, um, do that. Start with that, um, because ultimately content that's published is better than content that isn't. And so you have to start somewhere. And the con- the first post you do is going to be terrible and um make peace with that because you will get better and it will get easier um and if putting you know half an hour in your calendar every week to come up with a post is the um, reminder that you need to do that then then do that but don't overthink it post what's on your mind um and post about the thing that you think is relevant to your community, whether or not that exists, because ultimately your community will build around you. Um, so I think it's that. And as I say, don't feel pressured that you need to have a huge marketing budget straight away or you need to jump in with, you know, having a an all service newsroom um, to try and get onto the front page of The Guardian. Because also, I guess that's not realistic. <laughs> You're not going to get on the front page of The Guardian, even if you have the very best um, PRs in the business. But all of these things are about building up credibility and, um, you know, I think it does take time and you're never going to go from a standing start. That's not true. You can never say never. You are unlikely to go from a standing start. Um, And so. Go as fast as you're comfortable with um, and ask other people what they're also doing, who are going through perhaps similar experiences or a similar size working in a similar space. Get ideas from them um, and find out what's worked for them, too. And again, it might be that having an intern is a good idea for you. I would perhaps challenge whether at an early stage an intern is the, the right approach, given that you need to be able to give them something. And they're obviously very early in their career. And ultimately, you don't just want someone because they're cheap, but a freelancer or someone who can you know give you a couple of hours a week before, before you go in for a full hire or a full team or engaging an agency um and there are so many platforms out there that can help you with this stuff now not least chat GPT, everyone's talking about it and that's not to say just you know type into chat GPT, write me content on this topic or write me a linkedin post on this topic because ultimately people are going to see through that but use it to get get inspiration um don't feel that you need to kind of just pull something out of thin air and um and if all that you can think of doing is resharing something that someone else has shared with one sentence with your view on it. That's enough. Um, so yeah, just do something. Um, and don't feel that you need to be speaking to all of the journalists at the national newspapers or yeah, <laughs> starting a YouTube channel right away. Um that might be right for you at some point in time. Um uh, yeah. but go to where you feel most comfortable.
1: Yeah. I don't think we need to worry too much about the YouTube channel. Most medical shows have a YouTube channel already. Like, every, <laughs> every medical Yes, also so true, yeah. But yeah, correct. The yeah. one thing you did say, the one thing you did say that I, I resonate with is it's an iterative process. It's just making the start nice and slowly. And like I said, you don't need to be on National News front page the day you launch your product. Uh, and I think that's super important. And I think and you echoed it before, a lot of founders, they want that overnight success. They want to kind of get all of these deals with all these hospital trusts and kind of did a million dollar fundraisers. Um, and then I guess, you know, we live in a world where everyone's sharing all of these wins online and you never get to really see the, the reality behind the scenes.
2: Mm. Yeah, definitely. And that was exactly why I um, did that interview that I did where I basically told everyone I cried for three months. Um, because... It's not all sunshine and roses and, you know, it's really easy to to get caught up on all the celebratory posts that people put out there, which don't get me wrong. I also love seeing um, and it's amazing to be able to see people succeed and it feels good when you succeed and you inherently want to share that. But I also think it's really important to acknowledge that it that's not that's a snapshot. Um, and, you know, there's a whole like 95% of the journey that actually you're not seeing and that can feel quite lonely so if actually we're all a bit more open about those challenges um it helps us feel better but also it's going to help other people because they're not going to feel like they're the only person going through it and they can also get advice and see how other people have overcome these things um so yeah I think I think it's great when people succeed but don't feel like everyone else is succeeding and you're not because
1: that's not true you know no definitely agree and i think you you perfectly put it um and just speaking to you i think over an hour one of the reasons as to why i think somics is super successful is the human touch like you guys are like genuine people you know it's not just the machine uh, you know the genuine value like you do care about the brands and the clients you work with and you do want them to succeed and by virtue that helps kind of somex grow um but i'm super conscious of time i know we've taken up a lot of your time and we started late <laughs> but i want to say a massive thank you jeff no, for no kind way. of coming on the show sharing the story um, it's nice to hear someone working in health tech that also happens to be from a non-clinical background um, and it's interesting to see the journey what kind of brought you to, to to this world,
2: yeah. Well, thank you for having me. I think you know, for anyone, whether you're a clinician or not, I think if you're interested in health tech or whatever you're interested in, my advice is just say yes to things because you don't, you never know where you're going to end up. And that's all I ever did. I said yes to things. I told you earlier, I thought I was going to be head of comms on the Met, I am, I could not be further from that, and I am confident, I'm a lot happier than I would have been if I was in that role. So I think sometimes just do away with the expectations, say yes to opportunities. um, And you'll end up in the place that you're meant to be. So you'll be fine. And health tech has so many opportunities for everyone. I think it's an incredibly inclusive place. Um, There's, of course, more work to do to make us even more inclusive. But, you know, I think they really, it really embraces People, wherever they're coming from and wherever they're headed to. And that's one of the reasons why I like it so much. um So, yeah, never be scared about how do I get into health tech or whatever it may be. Um, whether you're a clinician or whether you're not, there's opportunities for everyone.
1: No, definitely. Uh, love this episode. A massive thank you once again. I wish SOMEX, both you and James, all of the best. And I know it's such an emerging field, like, you guys are going to kill it. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah it's been good
2: fun it has yeah i've loved it i think um i yeah i recently i've been on a couple of podcasts um which i don't often have the privilege of doing so it's been a lot of fun so thank you for thinking of me for inviting me um i've thoroughly enjoyed myself and it's always nice to chat to you both so i'll take any opportunity to do that
1: yeah (laughs) thank (laughs) you and a massive thank you to all our listeners as well we'll see you all next week